Hello, and welcome to the IFS Zooms In. I'm Paul Johnson, Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies. Now, since the pandemic, the scale of the NHS waiting list has been in the headlines almost constantly. At the start of 2023, Rishi Sunak committed to decreasing the size of the waiting list as one of his five priorities. But since then, it has actually gone up. So today we're going to dive into this topic. What is the NHS waiting list? How big is it? Why is it as high as it is? Is there a credible plan to get it back down? Where might it go over the next few years? These are clearly central questions for all of us as we think about, well, our own lives, but also uh, the next election. There's no question that the state of the NHS will be at the centre of that election. So joining me to help us answer those questions are two of my colleagues who are serious experts in the NHS and in the waiting lists and in NHS productivity and many other things besides. But Ben Zaranko and Max Warner, who work with me here at the IFS, and they've recently published one of a actually one of several reports, but in the last few days they've produced a report on NHS waiting lists and what we might expect to happen to them over the next few years. So let's um let, 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 let's start off not with the numbers, but actually, what do we mean when we're talking about an NHS waiting list? So I'm not sure that everyone is necessarily clear about that. What are people waiting for? Because you wait a lot in the NHS. You wait to see your GP. You wait to go and see someone at hospital. You then wait if you need an operation. You can have lots of bits of waiting. So what do we mean generally when we talk about waiting lists, Ben? First of all, generally when people talk about the NHS waiting list, we're talking about the NHS waiting list in England. Health is devolved. The NHS in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland collect their data separately and differently. And so in most of this conversation, we're going to focus on England with apologies to our listeners from elsewhere. Generally, when we talk about the waiting list, we're talking about the waiting list for pre-planned care or what's called elective care. And the way the NHS measures it is from referral to treatment. Now, if you're particularly unfortunate and you hear someone talking in the full jargon, you might hear RTT getting thrown around. That just means referral to treatment. So the moment when someone decides you should be treated in a hospital to the moment when that treatment pathway is completed, that can take maybe an initial sort of consultation followed by some sort of procedure. Sometimes it's done in one go, but it's from the point you're referred to the point when your treatment has been finished. And that is quite a big waiting list at the moment. There are a little bit more than 6 million unique people waiting on that list for something like 7.6 million different treatment pathways. So that's given the size of the English population. Those are big numbers. So just to be clear, I can go from the GP, I can have been through some sort of diagnostic assessment, I could have had an initial consultation, but if I haven't actually been treated, I'm still on the waiting list, even though I've actually done a bunch of things in the hospital. That's right. And, you know, different conditions, different ailments will have treatment pathways that are more or less complex. You might be treated as an outpatient, you might just be able to go in and leave after being seen. Sometimes you'll have to be admitted for a couple of hours and maybe you get discharged again. Some people will be admitted and stay for much longer if it's something more invasive or intensive. So this covers a lot, lots of different types of medical care across lots of different specialties. Um, but that's that's the sort of the big picture of what we're talking about here. And essentially, until you're done with, until the hospital says, we finished, you're basically counted as being on the waiting list. Yes. Okay. So actually, I think that's a really useful explainer because I think many people will think it's uh, the, the, the wait time till your first consultant appointment or your wait time till your first diagnosis or something is actually it's 
all of the people who are waiting for anything in, as you say, pre-planned care in hospitals. And Max, what, what do we know about the composition of that waiting list? I mean, perhaps just repeat what Ben said about the total size of it. How much do we know about how many people are waiting for more than one thing? How much of this is just about the diagnostic? How much of this is about other other elements of care? So it's a really good question. And actually, I'd start by saying there's not actually a huge amount of information on the actual people who are on the waiting list, say their characteristics. What we do know, as Ben says, is that the waiting list in the latest data, so that's for December of last year, stood at 7.6 million incomplete pathways. So each pathway is a set of treatment. As Ben alluded to, we've now recently also got data on the unique number of people on the waiting list. So that stood at 6.4 million, suggesting, you know, on average, most people probably have one piece of treatment that they're waiting for, but there are some with two and there's probably a tale of people waiting for three, four, maybe even five pieces of treatment. We also do know a little bit about where they're living and where they're waiting for, so which hospital and also which kind of treatment they're waiting for. And I think we'll come back later to discuss that there is actually quite big differences between different regions and different medical specialties. So they sound like big numbers. 6.4 6.4 million, 7.6 million. I think those are the numbers that you used. Are they big numbers? I mean, given the way this is defined, given the size of the population, given the amount of treatment that the NHS does, and I can't remember the numbers, but the NHS does a heck of a lot. How can we think about these in terms of scale? And I guess one way to ask that is what did the size of the waiting list look like pre-pandemic in 2010 and in times past. But also, uh, I think another sense of scale is if you got the numbers to hand, how much stuff does the NHS do that these people are on the waiting list for? So starting first, I guess the easiest way to put this into context is how it's changed over time, as you said. So on the eve of the pandemic in December 2019, there were 4.6 million incomplete pathways. Right now, 7.6. So several million higher waiting list. But I think the key thing when we talk about the waiting list is to remember that pre-pandemic, it was already growing. So in January 2010, there were about 2.3 million incomplete pathways. So from 2010 to 2019, the waiting list had already doubled. And then it's grown by several more million since the start of the pandemic. But as you say, the NHS treats millions of people each month. So just from the waiting list, they're treating more than a million people each month. But then correspondingly, more than a million people are joining the waiting list each month. Yeah, and that's, I mean, it is mind-boggling, isn't it, that, that scale? I mean, more than a million coming off the waiting list every month, and yet the waiting list doesn't go down because so many more people are joining it. And that sense of scale, I think, is, is, is really important. It doubled between 2010 and 2019, and we've added another 3 million or so to the waiting list since 2019. I mean, that, that's the size, that's just the sheer size of the waiting list, but it obviously matters to people how long they're waiting. I mean, there might be 7 million people waiting with they're only all waiting a week. It probably doesn't matter terribly much. But uh, the problem is that certainly you know, a year or two ago, some people were waiting two years. And it's still the case, I think, that some people are waiting 18 months and quite a few more than a year. So can you just give us a sense of how long people are waiting? And again, how, how do we think about that? Is that the length of time they're waiting for their next appointment? Or is that the length of time from a GP referral to the very end of their treatment path? Again, I think it's quite useful people to get a sense of what exactly are we talking about? There's a few different ways of, of measuring waiting time. I think oh, the, Of course there is. Well, <laughs> well you know, just to give a really simple example, it matters a bit whether you, if you, say, if you were to go to people who are waiting for hospital care 
and you ask the people who are still waiting and you say, how long have you been waiting? You might get a different answer to you ask the people who are just leaving the hospital having been treated and say, how long did you have to wait? Mm-hmm. And you get different numbers if you do that. So among the people who are on the list and are yet to be treated, their median waiting time, so about half of them have been waiting less than this and half of them have been mm-hmm. waiting more, is about 15 weeks now. That's 15 weeks from Referral when they first referred to their final treatment. Yes. Okay, so it's not from when they're first referred to the first thing that they do, but it's 15 weeks to wait from my GP refers me and I'm actually having the operation. Yes, so it doesn't include any time you wait to see a GP or convincing your GP or any of those things or waiting for, I don't know, blood tests to come back from your GP. So that stands currently at 15 weeks. It was more like 10 weeks pre-pandemic. So that's gone up a bit. If you look at the people who have just finished their treatment, you get a slightly smaller number. Those people have, on average, were waiting more like 10 weeks. Now, some of that might be a composition thing. The very sickest people get pushed to the front of the queue and they get treated faster. So if you look at just the people who've been treated, you get a different answer. All of this is a long way of saying it depends how you measure it. It's gone up. Clearly, the waiting time is what matters to people rather than the list. And I think most of the action since the pandemic has really been in the long tail. So the people who've been waiting a very long time. Before the pandemic came, yes, waiting times were maybe nudging upwards, but it was almost unheard of to have to wait for more than a year, more than 18 months. Whereas now there are hundreds of thousands of people who've been sat on that waiting list for more than a year. I think it's about 350,000, give or take, have been waiting more than a year for treatment. That basically wasn't a thing pre-COVID. So I think it's that long tail where most of the changes happened. And, you know, waiting more than a year if you're in pain or if you desperately need something causes people a lot of distress, a lot of discomfort, and we should we should worry about that. And do we know why that it's happened in that long tail? I mean, you, you can understand why if the pressure on the NHS increases, you know, everyone might move from waiting 10 weeks to waiting 12 weeks or, or something. But why, why have we got this move to hundreds of thousands of people waiting for more than a year? I think the way to make sense of that is it's not first come, first served, right? If you are sat on the waiting list for something not very urgent, maybe some sort of routine procedure that needs to be doing, but you're not going to die if it doesn't happen, you'll probably be treated very differently to if you arrive with you know, very advanced cancer, for example. And we rightly prioritise based on clinical need. And so if the NHS is only just managing to stay on top of the ultra-severe cases, your sort of run-of-the-mill, not-quite-so-sick right. yeah. people might end up waiting a very long time. So looking at the aggregate will hide a lot of movement within that a lot of people being shuffled up and down and i think that there's a real question about how we should prioritize people i think there's been some interesting work done looking at inequalities across angles like deprivation but also across ethnicity and across things like that where there might be inequalities in waiting times and there's some people arguing that we should prioritize people who are from certain backgrounds to try and narrow some of these gaps some within the medical profession think we should be prioritizing solely based on clinical need but this is happening all the time we can't just pretend it isn't happening someone somewhere is deciding who to prioritize and it's probably right that we have that conversation and so those numbers waiting a very long time are essentially a measure of the stress the system is under because it's um, it's prioritizing those who really, really need it. It doesn't really have the resources for those who still need treatment. But as you say, they won't necessarily die if they don't get the treatment. It's a real measure of stress on the system. Yeah, I, th- I think that's definitely one way to think about it. But it's also worth saying that the policy aim has been to reduce these long waiters. So there's been explicit targets about we want to reduce the number of people waiting more than two years down to zero, followed by the people waiting one and three quarters years down to zero. So that's been the policy priority. And yet we've not 
managed to do it, perhaps because the system is under so much stress elsewhere that they've not managed to find the resource. And how, how have we done against those particular targets, Max? As, as Ben was saying, you know, the idea was zero people waiting more than two years. I think we're, are we already at the point where we should have nobody waiting more than one and three quarter years, and we're very close to the point where we should have no one waiting more than 18 months. So in 2022, NHS England published its kind of backlog recovery plan, aiming to get on top of this elective backlog. That involved lots of targets, but as we've just mentioned, a lot of those at least the earliest targets focused on these really long waiters. So the plan was that by July of 2022, nobody would be waiting more than two years. Then by April of last year, nobody would be waiting more than a year and a half. There are then upcoming targets, nobody should wait more than a year and a quarter. And then a target, no one should wait more than a year. Two of those have passed. So in theory, if those targets had been achieved, nobody should be waiting more than a year and a half. In practice, that hasn't quite happened. Now, the NHS has really made a lot of progress on long waits. So by the time that that two-year target had to be achieved, so no one waiting more than two years, the number of people waiting that long had been decreased by 90%. So a massive progress, but technically not achieved, but very, very close and, and a good performance. And crucially, the number waiting more than two years has continued to decline since then. And now in the latest data, there's maybe, say, 300 people waiting more than two years. A tiny number. A tiny number. When it comes to a year and a half, that was the target for last year. Again, a 90% reduction on deadline day, that still means that there are about 10,000 people waiting this long. And, and actually particularly concerning is the number of incomplete pathways, more than a year and a half. They got it down a lot, but it's actually started to rise a little bit since then. So they got close, they didn't quite get there, and even more concerningly, still rising. And when it comes to those targets that are yet to come for those waiting more than a year and a quarter, a year, there's still a little bit time on the clock, but there are really, you know, 100,000 more waiting more than a year. There's 85,000 waiting more than a year and a quarter. In theory, that should be zero in the next three months. I think that's quite unlikely to be met. That's going to be tough. And what about the things, I mean, so, so we've talked about the sort of total number. We've talked about the people waiting a very long time. There are other targets, aren't there, about how long people should be waiting for cancer treatment in particular. And whereas, you know, it's unpleasant in the extreme to wait six, 12 months if you want a knee replacement or operation, wait that long for cancer and that probably is fatal. So what do we know about what's happening to cancer waiting lists? So cancer isn't included in the elective waiting list. It's a kind of separate set of waiting lists and waiting targets. How do you know I didn't know that? Okay, yeah, so, 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 so if you're waiting for cancer treatment, don't, you don't even count in that 7 million? Not number. in this number. No, okay. You're in a separate list. Right. They're separate targets. Now, right. they've quite recently changed those targets. They've also changed what their data they're collecting. So we've really focused in our work on this, on the targets that were running until September of last year. That gives us a kind of long run view. And there are kind of, there are many different targets. Part of the reason that they did, I <laughs> let, think, rightly reform. Let, let, let's stick to the headline ones. But the headline one is that you, between an urgent GP referral, so your GP thinks this person might have cancer, mm -hmm. they send you on an urgent referral to the hospital, you should get that hospital appointment within two weeks. Mm -hmm. Now, pre-pandemic, about 8% of people were waiting more than two weeks. So that's pretty good. Most people are getting that done within two weeks. In the latest data for September of last year, more than a quarter of people waited longer than two weeks. So that's a really quite big deterioration in quality. Now, part of that comes down to actually a lot more people, quite concerningly, are actually coming forward for cancer care. So they're treating a lot more people who have suspected cancer, but kind of correspondingly, the waiting time performance has got worse. People are on average waiting a bit longer to get seen when they might have cancer. 
And do we have numbers on the time people are waiting from? So you're talking about they, they go from the GP, they get a diagnosis, and actually most of them won't have cancer, I guess. But if you're then diagnosed with cancer, how long are you waiting after that? So in that case, you are not supposed to wait more than two months, or at least the operational target was that no more than 15% of people should wait more than two months. Now, we were missing that pre-COVID. It was about 22% of people were waiting more than two months from that moment of urgent referral to the moment when your treatment starts. That's now more like 40%. So that's a big chunk of people uh, that, waiting I mean, more than two months. That sounds quite scary. I mean, if I had a cancer diagnosis, I wouldn't want to be waiting two months, let alone more than two months. So almost half now waiting, 40% waiting, waiting more than those two months. I mean, that is, uh, that, that is really quite worrisome. But that relates to the fact, as you were saying, that there are more people coming forward and more people being treated and the NHS hasn't caught up on that. I think there's an, you might come back to this, but there's an interesting feature about the, if you look specifically at cancer, where it does look like there's been a big increase in the number of people arriving with suspected cancer symptoms and in the number of people being treated for those symptoms, which you don't see across the board in the system. And it's a sort of a, a bit of a puzzle as to why that's the case and why you can tell a story about, you know, during the pandemic, everyone was at home, everyone was afraid to go to the doctor or go to the hospital or didn't want to burden the NHS. You didn't get the, that thing checked out, which you should have done. I struggle to tell a story as to why that's true only of some symptoms and some conditions where if you look at things that aren't cancer, we've just seen a bewilderingly low number of people coming forward to join the waiting list. Millions, I think this, we can calculate in various ways, but something like 8 million fewer referrals onto the waiting list, the non-cancer waiting list, than we might have expected. And everyone kept saying, oh, at some point these people are going to come forward for care and we're going to have to be prepared for that. And they just haven't. And that's just a really big puzzle, which I don't think anybody understands. We don't understand what caused it. We don't understand what the consequences of it might be. But this one of this one of the things that's come out of the pandemic that I think has to be at least in the conversation when we're talking about why is everyone so much sicker? Why is the population sicker than we thought? Why are more people claiming disability benefits or dropping out of work because of ill health? I think it's very hard to prove this, but it seems at least plausible that some of it is was millions of people needed healthcare and they didn't get it. And now they doesn't look like they're ever going to get it and the health might have suffered as a consequence. Interesting. So two puzzles there. One, what happened to the 8 million people who we would expect to join the waiting list during the pandemic who never came forward? And by that, we mean the numbers joining the waiting list post-pandemic actually didn't rise relative to pre-pandemic trends. And we'll come on to that point in a moment. It might surprise people. The second is this, again, I hadn't quite appreciated, more people seem to be having cancer than we'd expect, which is really devastating for those affected. And that's that's really not just driven by demographic change or anything like that. For different cancers and at different ages, more people are coming forward with cancer. Certainly in the short term, it seems unlikely to be such a big change in underlying need. And I think one of the explanations for these two facts, that cancer, a lot more referrals, the rest of the waiting list, not really that many more referrals than pre-pandemic, is a lot of it's to do with referral behaviour by people like GPs. GPs know waiting lists are longer. Maybe hospitals are raising the thresholds for which they'll accept patients. So maybe these patients are coming forward and needing care, but the GP is unable to actually refer them on. So we do see in the national picture, GPs are seeing more patients than pre-pandemic, 
and referring fewer patients onto the waiting list. When all else equal, we probably expect demand to be higher than pre-pandemic. So I think one of the explanations for this is, of course, GPs are still going to refer cancer patients, but you know they're really struggling to be able to refer enough people onto the waiting list than maybe they would have pre-pandemic. So they really are acting as the gatekeepers to the system. They know that the system is overburdened, and so they're, they're creating a bigger hurdle about where well, you have to be iller for them to be willing to even put you on the waiting list at all. So there may be some hidden waiting behind that. And I suppose that all really begs the question, I mean, what on earth is going on? I mean, why have these waiting lists been increasing so much if there are no more people outside of cancer? There are no more people actually joining the waiting list. Now, arithmetically, that must mean there are fewer coming off at the other end. But we know that we've got more doctors and more nurses and more money. So what's going on? So fundamentally, as you say, a waiting list is quite simple. People join it and people leave it. Fewer people are joining it, but equally fewer people are leaving it. And actually that's because treatment volumes, particularly early on in the pandemic, but even now are either bit below or just at their pre-pandemic levels. And as you said, and as we've talked about a lot recently, the NHS has a lot more funding and it has a lot more staffing than pre-pandemic, but both for the waiting list, but also for lots of other types of care, say emergency healthcare, we're seeing the NHS either treating fewer patients or roughly the same number of patients pre-pandemic. And this is really quite a concerning thing because it points to actually quite a large fall in measured hospital productivity. Hospitals, again, have more money, have more staff, are not correspondingly being able to increase activity to the same extent. Ben, what are the potential causes of that? I mean, we don't know the answer, but there are a number of possible things that are doing that. I think where, uh, I mean, I'm always nervous when all the quote-unquote experts start to agree with each other, but I think where the sort of consensus is moving to is that there's something imbalanced in what economists might call the input mix. So the, the sorts of things you have to bring together to produce healthcare, you need staff, you need buildings, you need drugs, you need people, not just the frontline staff, you need people to keep the backroom operations going. And we've swung too much towards relying on frontline staff and we've neglected things like what we call capital, that's things like buildings, equipment, maybe the IT, maybe the electronic patient records, maybe it's the number of beds available to actually put patients in, maybe it's that there's fewer managers able to actually you know, plan shift rotors or to make sure that surgeries are being used efficiently and you can throw more and more frontline staff into a situation but you're not necessarily going to treat more patients. If you think about it maybe as, imagine a kitchen in a restaurant, if you keep adding chefs eventually you're going to run out of hobs and you're not going to you're not going to churn out many more starters than you would otherwise if you can do it with fewer chefs so i think that that's one part of the explanation i guess the other one is there's several more but the other big one i think is the lingering effects of covid where there are still lots of people in hospital with covid in beds that could otherwise be used to treat people with non-COVID conditions. We know that people with COVID have much longer length of stay in hospital once they're there than do other patients. So that's, you know, clogging up the system. And you add to that also a whole litany of things like maybe a changing composition of staff, maybe staff are more burnt out, lower morale, maybe not doing so much unpaid overtime. Maybe there's difficulties getting people out the back door, back into the community because of social care that's clogging up the system, plus a whole set of other things that I can't remember off the top of my head. But this, you know, this is another big multi-billion pound puzzle and the government's rightly focusing on this. It's got a public sector productivity review. There's rumours that we might hear something about this in the budget, which at the time of recording is in about a week's time. So uh, it's a big question. I don't think we completely know the answer. 
But that productivity question is bound up with this waiting list question because if the NHS can't find a way to translate those additional resources into more people being treated, it's very difficult to see how the waiting list can fall in a consistent fashion over the months and years to come. What, what about strikes? I mean, uh, the, the, the Prime Minister Mead has promised to get the waiting list down. That hasn't happened. Government has tended to use strikes as part of the blame for the reason for, for, for that not happening. To what, to what extent can we blame the fact that doctors have been on strike for, 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 for where we are with waiting lists and indeed for the government missing its target to get waiting lists down? So I think strikes, of course, are having an impact on hospitals and the number of patients they're treating. Indeed, that's kind of an objective of a strike to cause (laughs) disruption, to have a stronger bargaining position. So I think it's fair to say that strikes are having an impact on days when junior doctors or consultants or nurses earlier on on strike. It's likely that hospitals are treating fewer patients. And to that extent, that is influencing the waiting list. That would be all else equal, pushing up the waiting list. But as Ben just listed, there's lots of other things that are holding back the number of patients the NHS is treating. So it's certainly not the case that, you know, without strikes, everything would be going brilliantly, for would, example. Would we, I mean, I suppose this is the key thing from the Prime Minister's point of view, if there have been no strikes, can we say whether or not the waiting list would have been smaller at the end of 2023 than at the beginning? It's a really good question, but it's very hard to answer. We have looked into this, and I think our conclusion is it's hard to say. <laughs> Either way. And that's an unfortunate one, but it's true. It's not obvious to us that the target would have been met had strikes not occurred, but it's also not obvious to us that the other case isn't also true. So, so it's, a pl- it's a plausible excuse. It's, 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 not, it's not an excuse we can disprove. It's certainly true that it had a big impact. Whether it would have been enough, so as one of us said earlier, the waiting list was about 400,000 higher than when the Prime Minister made that target at the beginning of last year. By the end, it was 400,000 higher. Strikes have led to more than a million pieces of cancelled black activity. Not all of those would have ended a waiting list pathway. So we cannot compare that million to 400,000, but it kind of gives you a sense of scale. Strikes really did have a big impact. But again, they weren't the only thing. I think it's completely conceivable that without the strikes, maybe waiting lists would have started to fall sooner because they, they were falling in the last three months of 2023. And maybe they would have started to fall a little bit sooner than that if it weren't for strikes. That's definitely within the realms of possibility. I think it's not just about the, the counting up how many operations were cancelled and how many people might have otherwise got their treatment. I think there's also likely to have been an impact on, you know, manager headspace, thinking about the the leadership in these hospitals, having to spend so much time worrying about strikes that they can't sit down and make a plan for how we're going to, what's our recovery plan for getting through the backlog in our local area. I think there's lots of things that are very difficult to measure empirically that probably have played a part. So I think it's one of those things that sounds plausible, but we'll probably never be able to completely prove either way. But to take Max's point, the purpose of strikes is to cause disruption, and they've been effective in that sense. I mean, the purpose, of course, is to get pay rises in the end, but you you do that by making life difficult for your employer. You mentioned, Ben, that part of the issue is we maybe got the, the mix of inputs wrong, maybe not enough beds or machines or whatever, not enough capital, and that reflects a lack of spending on infrastructure over the last 10, 15 years. Have I not seen stuff in the newspapers recently saying that there's been, yet again, movement of money from current, in other words, you paying... Uh, moving money from that capital budget into into current budgets and therefore possibly creating even more problems for the future. Indeed. This was something which happened on a a pretty regular basis during the 2010s, where in theory, the NHS has its two budgets, which are separate. One is to meet day-to-day costs, paying staff, running hospitals. The second one is for capital investment. And we saw almost every year in the late 2010s, the NHS would move money from its capital pot 
into its day-to-day pot. Now, in theory, that's not supposed to be allowed, but the Treasury would begrudgingly allow them every single year, it seems. And then that came to a stop. And indeed, there was you know senior people in the NHS saying, we don't do that anymore. That's not a thing we do anymore. It turns out it is a thing they do still. This year, again, uh, there will be several hundreds of millions of pounds shifted from things like the tech budget or from the new hospitals program budget to help meet the costs of, among other things, strikes and higher pay awards. Now, that is another example of potential short-term thinking at the expense of making those investments that could improve productivity and and the the capacity of the health system in the medium term. I can see why it might be difficult if you're under very immediate pressure, running a deficit, struggling to make the numbers add up, why you might feel like you haven't got much choice but to do that. But it is just storing up problems for the future. We're presumably going to need those hospitals built at some point, we're presumably going to need to buy whatever tech it was they were going to buy. And so it's a, it's disappointing to see that happen again uh, and see capital deprioritized in order to pay more frontline staff and potentially exacerbate this problem we were talking about. And again, it's a, it's a signal of a system under pressure, isn't it? That it's so necessary or deemed so necessary to take that money away just to keep the show on the road that you deprioritize the future. And I mean, one of the things that was really shocking to me as part of, you know, I took part in the Times Health Commission that reported relatively recently was the number of people from the NHS who came and talked to us about how dreadful the equipment was that they were working with, incredibly out-of-date IT systems, computers that would take half an hour to turn on, you know, systems that didn't talk to one another and you just kind of think you just need to sort it's extraordinary that we're trying to run this modern health service without that sort of investment you you, you've mentioned ben that the you know that this may result in problems over the coming years and we'll come to that in, in in a moment but before we get there we've talked in a very general term so far about you know, there are waiting lists, the length of time people are waiting is going up, the number of people waiting is is going up. But we've talked about that across everything that the NHS does. But recent piece of work that the two of you have put out indicates that there's quite a lot of variation between different issues that you present with in some areas, actually, or for some medical problems, the waiting list times have, if anything, gone down a little bit. And for some, they've gone up a lot. Max, perhaps you could just take us through the headlines of that. How much variation is there? I mean, what, what are the things you really don't want to have to be on a waiting list for? And which are the ones that actually you might get seen a bit quicker for? So as you say, we tend to focus on the national picture. And obviously, that matters, particularly for policy. But for an actual individual who needs treatment, what really matters is the waiting list for their hospital or the waiting list for their medical specialty. And as you say, we've dug into this and you find remarkably large variation between places and specialties. So I guess big picture, thinking about the regions of England, just to give you some examples, at the one end is the east of England, where the waiting list relative to pre-pandemic is 110% higher. So more than twice as high. More than doubled. In the northeast in Yorkshire, I'm going to use the word just here, it's just 70% higher. <laughs> Only 70% Only just. <laughs> but, you know, 110% in the east of England, 70% higher. Yeah. When you go into lower level of geography, even bigger differences. There are some local areas where the waiting list is just 30% higher than pre-pandemic. Obviously higher, but you know not massively higher. Other local areas, it's 150% higher. Wow. So tremendous variation in these waiting lists based on where you live. But as you said, there's another angle to this as well, which is the types of things you're waiting for. And again, people on waiting lists are waiting for lots of different types of medical treatment and medical specialties. Taking the extremes, something like general internal medicine 
actually the total waiting list. What is general internal medicine? That sounds yeah. like generally muck around in my insides. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so general internal medicine, which I think covers a lot of kind of, well, I don't want to say general internal things, but we, we are unfortunately not doctors. <laughs> covers things to do with your major organs internally. Um, <laughs> that actually, the waiting list is 2% down relative okay. to pre-pandemic. If you're waiting for gynecology, waiting list is more like 100%, 109% higher. So over double. And again, there's a huge amount of variation between those two things. If you're waiting for a hip replacement versus for a cataract appointment, again, they're going to be different waiting lists for these different types of treatment. Again, we presumably don't know much about why there are those differences. So I think there's, we don't know a huge amount. There's more we are going to and planning to say on this in the future. Two big differences, though, of course, are going to be how demand has changed. So demand for certain types of care and in certain places might have changed a lot differentially. You know, a classic example is that the population in London seems to be a bit lower than pre-pandemic growth rate was. It seems to have dropped a bit. Elsewhere seems to have a bit more population. So there's some of that, of course, medical need as well. But also just differences in kind of how well the NHS in your area is doing. There's remarkable variation in what is one national healthcare system, how well each hospital and each hospital organisation within it is actually doing. Some hospitals are really recovering well from the pandemic and, you know, shooting ahead. Some are still really struggling. So there's a huge amount of variation within this system. And hence, presumably, quite a lot of scope for the laggards to learn from the, the, those who are doing well, possibly. I think that's the optimistic case for improving NHS productivity. It's not trying to do things that no one's ever done before, but actually just trying to get the poor performing organisations to be a little bit more like the really high performing organisations. Yeah, that's true across the economy and uh, both public and private sector. Very easy to say, incredibly hard, hard to actually do. to achieve. I think, I think to think about that, though, you, you don't need to be reinventing the medical profession with a large language model or whatever, you know, pushing the frontier, being completely innovative. Maybe that would be good if we could do that. But maybe a good start would be just making sure that the doctor's computer turns on on a morning. Yes, exactly. You know? So maybe it relates to the capital discussion, but we don't have to be world-leading, innovative, reinventing the fields. Maybe some of the low-hanging fruit would be a good place to start. Yeah, it doesn't sound so good in a Secretary of State speech, does it? They say, well, my, 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 my aim is not to be world-leading, it's to be vaguely competent. Uh, rather, <laughs> rather than sending the Secretary of State to cut the ribbon on a shiny new hospital, maybe we send them to triumphantly press the on button on a functioning desktop. That would be, that would be good. That would be an excellent start. Before we finish, let's let's um, let's peer into the future because um, the, the, the two of you have very bravely tried to peer into the future of waiting lists and, and where they might go, given what we know about resources, about demand, and, and so on over the next few years. What, what, what did you what did you conclude? I mean, are, are waiting lists going to start coming down sharply anytime soon? The positive news, if you're someone either waiting for or planning to start waiting for NHS care, is that the waiting list started to fall at the end of 2023. It fell for three consecutive months, which is good news. And the NHS looks like there's some tentative signs the NHS might be finally managing to boost its treatment volumes. And we've done some projections going forwards. And our best estimate is that waiting lists will now bobble around for a bit, start falling steadily from the summer of this year and be falling in a you know sustained fashion by the time of the general election we expect in the autumn. The problem is they'll be falling steadily, but they'll be falling steadily and slowly. And that'll come off the back of 12 years or so when they've been rising steadily and quickly. So it's going to take a while to undo the increase we've seen post-pandemic. Our best estimate is it will take at least a full parliament to get back to where we were 
pre-COVID, even under optimistic assumptions. We think that at the end of the next parliament, the waiting list will still be larger than it was when we were all hearing the first news stories about a weird virus coming out of China. Um, and if you want to get back to where we were in like 2012, that's a completely different conversation. But, you know, I think there's some signs for optimism. We think that, the you know, the peak might be behind us or is very, you know, we're very soon going to be over the hump. And it's going to be a long slog to get back to where we were pre-pandemic. And there's nothing particularly special about where we were pre-pandemic. Things had already been deteriorating for a while. The NHS was already missing most of its major targets. But, you know, with a bit of concerted effort, undoubtedly some funding, some focus, there you know, there's signs that we could start to undo some of the damage, I think. Max, before the podcast, you were telling me you weren't even that cheerful. Well, I think, I think there's a range... We produce a range of scenarios, and that's because there is a lot of uncertainty here. We have actually, you joked about us predicting the future. Our past scenarios have actually done very well at predicting the future. But of course, these are just scenarios. I think, well, even the optimistic take from Ben there is still that waiting lists at the end of next parliament are probably going to be higher, very likely to be higher than pre-pandemic. In our more pessimistic scenario... We're actually less pessimistic than we've been in the past. So in our pessimistic... Excellent. I know, it's brilliant. <laughs> pessimistic scenario here is that waiting lists more or less flatline over the next parliament. We don't think they're going to shoot up. We were talking about this a year ago, particularly two years ago. A lot of this, our work on this started when Sajid Javid in the early parts of the pandemic warned that waiting lists could be 10, 12 million. That at the time looked plausible. Now we don't think that's going to happen. And that's because none of these people who missed out on treatment during COVID have turned up. Exactly. So and we assume they now just won't. Great for waiting lists, definitely maybe not so great for population health. But from the waiting list perspective, that means even in our kind of downside pessimistic scenario, we think waiting lists would probably flatline over the next number of years. That's, that's still obviously not great, but I think it's a lot better than we were thinking last year or the year before. Well, I guess there's some scope for um, optimism in that. It doesn't sound like we're going to get any worse than where we are at the moment. Things should get better over the next parliament. But I think your view is that pretty much a decade after the pandemic began, we're probably going to have higher waiting lists than we had at that point. Maybe not by very much, but probably still a bit higher. And with some chance, there'll still be quite a lot higher. So that's a challenge for all of us. It's a challenge for the next government, for sure. We probably ought to bring this to an end. I mean, Ben, Max, it's been fantastic. I mean, I think the two of you probably know more about this than virtually anyone, and you've expressed it incredibly clearly. And I've certainly understood more about how waiting lists work and about the scale of the challenge facing facing us over the next few years. So thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the IFS Zooms In. You can see the work that Ben and Max have done on the IFS website, www.ifs.org. UK, including a fantastic model they've built that allows you to plug in some assumptions and look at what might happen to NHS waiting lists over time. I can indeed say that that is a prize-winning model and it's already been developed to be even better than it was when it won its prize for being so good at illustrating statistics. So do have a look at that. And if you want to support us further, please do consider becoming a member of the IFS for as little as £10 a month. You can find out more in the episode description. We'll see you next time.